from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Earl Redman on February 24, 2020. Earl has written several books on the Baha'i Faith, published to the UK publisher George Ronald. Two of his books are about Abdu'l-Baha. Abdu'l-Baha is one of the central figures of the Baha'i Faith and is the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah. Earl explains why Abdu'l-Baha is an important figure to Baha'is and tells a number of stories about Abdu'l-Baha in the interview. Earl's wife, Sharon O'Toole, is an active participant in the interview who tells her story about her spiritual search and reads excerpts from Earl's stories about Abdu'l-Baha. I started the interview by first asking Earl where he grew up and what was spiritual life like growing up. Well, I was born in Denver, Colorado and grew up in uh, New Mexico. My family were Methodists from way back. We have Methodist circuit riders and stuff in the family. and uh, So I was to church every, every Sunday. But about the time I got into college, things kind of changed because uh, I started kind of feeling bored with what I was hearing. And then I started looking around and I noticed that in uh, the Methodist church there where I grew up in New Mexico, there was uh, one that had mostly white people, one that had mostly blacks, one that had mostly Hispanics. And I thought this didn't seem very right. And so I started running around looking at all the other churches I could find, the Baptists, various Baptists, the Presbyterians and all sorts of people. And I didn't see whole lots that was different one from the other. The only thing that seemed to be different was how they interpreted the Bible. I didn't really agree with their interpretations in many cases. And since each of them said that they were the only ones who were correct, then I decided, well, I just couldn't deal with that. So I left all organized religion and uh, I was a backpacker and a mountain climber. So that became my church. For how many years was that your passion? Well, that. That started in uh, the, the very end of high school and went through into college and uh, probably went on for close to 10 years. And then we went and climbed a mountain called Mount Foraker up in Alaska. We were trying a route that had never been, well, actually the approach had never been tried before, much less the route. And we got way up on the high area, didn't quite make it. And we were, we were descending and it was a really unpleasant day. Winds would go from absolutely dead calm to very strong just in an instant. And at one point, uh, the guy who was in front of me, and we were tied together by a rope because we were walking all over glaciers, and the wind knocked him down, and he took off down the mountainside. Oh my. And I threw myself on the snow and stuck my ice axe in, but it was really lousy snow for ice axe arrests. The next thing I knew, I was just kind of floating down the mountainside. And there was this kind of dribbling feeling in the background. And I had all these very distinct thoughts. And I was wondering what, down, what was down below us. And I thought, well, there's an ice, 5,000-foot ice face. And then I said, well, it looks like I've, I remember saying I've bought the farm. And wonder what everybody was going to think about when they found out I got killed in the mountains. I was having all these very distinct thoughts. But I was just kind of floating down, you know, not a trouble in the world. And I realized the body was going to get killed. And 
Uh, I didn't care. It wasn't important. I remember having a number of other little thoughts, very nice, calm thoughts. And then at one point, I uh, flew across a big, big wide crevasse. It must have been about 20 feet wide. I left a knee print in the middle of it. And then I caught my knee, my leg poked through the snow cover on the crevasse. And I ended up head down, hanging from that one knee on a 60-degree blue ice face. Then the other guy came down after me. I passed him on the way down, and he flew over the crevasse, missed it entirely. And climbing ropes are kind of interesting because they stretch out and uh, almost 100% stretch before they break. So anyway, it has a lot of sporing to it. And he flew over the top, and when he went past, the uh, the rope came tight, and I ended up doing a flip. And where my leg had been, my arm ended up. I had one crampon dangling from my boot. It wasn't on the boot anymore. The other crampon had two points embedded in his blue ice face. This arm that had the ice axe was dislocated at the shoulder. So there I was hanging there. And the first thing I had to do, he, he was stopped dead down below me. He just kind of was looking up at me. So I had to jam my ice axe into the snow and get my shoulder back into place. Oh, my God. And then we had to climb up on this crevasse and blade ourselves to a point where it was fairly good. But I missed the one point that was really important here. When I, uh, After I stopped the fall, I had two, probably two of the most powerful emotions I've ever had. The first one was absolutely disgusting because I was back on this body, which at that point was uh, a little more worse for wear. But I'd no sooner had that one than I had this tremendous feeling of delight because I was still alive. And to me, the first one was a soul, which didn't want to be back in the body. And the second one was the combination. And that pretty much told me that uh, there's a body and there's a soul, and they're completely separate, and that the body was not in the important part. So that led me to meeting a lady named Sharon O'Toole. She introduced me to the Baha'i faith. I wasn't a very good conversationalist at that point, but I did find if I asked her questions on the faith, she would carry the whole conversation. I could sit there and nod a lot. So I kind of summarized it up by saying for 11 and a half months, I just sat there and listened and tried to, I read books and asked questions and tried to do it all logically, you know, left brain male type thing. And I couldn't make any decision about who Baha'u'llah was. When you say Baha'u'llah, who are you referring to? Yeah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. And so what I did is I uh, very consciously told my heart, said, okay, what do you think? The head can't make up his mind. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Within two weeks, I declared myself as a Baha'i. And uh, I signed uh, my car the day we got married, and I say, you know, Baha'is are supposed to be really good about accompanying people. And I say, Sharon did an extreme example of that, carrying me all the way through and even marrying me to make sure I became a Baha'i. So. <laughs> That's cute. Now, you said Sharon had an interesting story. Yeah. Yep. She's sitting here, so let me pass the phone across to her. Okay. Yes, I was raised in, uh, born and raised in southeast Alaska, and I was raised Catholic in a small village on an island. Uh, when I got to high school age, I had to board with different families in Juneau, because that was the closest high school. I was to attend catechism classes, which I did for a while, but I asked too many questions because I was that was just my nature. So from then on, I went to various churches with friends, but nothing spoke to me. And after I got out of high school, I uh, went to the States for several months because I'd worked all summer and then uh, came back and moved to Juneau to 
worked for the territory. Got married in five years, had four children. <laughs> but I was searching and just, and I wasn't quite sure what for. But in the background, it was just always, always looking. And finally, when the kids got to an age where I thought, well, they need to be raised in a religion, I got a little more serious. I decided I didn't know much about the Bible, so I decided, well, I was told you can't read it from front to back. Well, that was a challenge. So that's what I did. In one year, I read and studied it, found very interesting things. <laughs> so finally, after that time, um, it was really confusing as far as religion goes. And I remember praying to be free of, of prejudice for or against any religion. And I remember saying that I don't care how many religions I have to go through, um, help me to recognize the right one when it comes along. Two days later, these two Mormon elders knocked at the door. I knew nothing about the Mormon faith. <laughs> so I studied with them for two months. And I decided, well, I could keep studying, but if I jump in, I'll find out whether this is the right one or not. Became a very active Mormon. And during this time, my husband came home with this book that he'd gotten from a non-Baha'i called Thief in the Night. Well, I just read the Bible, and I read it, and uh, wow, <laughs> this was it. So what was the book Thief in the Night about? It was about the return of Jesus using the the Bible and chronology so on. Like I say, I just read the Bible and this just really spoke to me. What was the result of you reading this book? Well, my husband went back to this village where he or town where he'd been working and uh, met another person who gave him a phone number to go to a Baha'i fireside. And what is a Baha'i Fireside? Baha'i Fireside is just an informal gathering where there's a presentation, the basics of the faith, and people are free to ask questions and so on. But when I had become a Mormon, he was not happy with that at all. So I thought, well, I better be a little more careful about Baha'i. So he attended this one fireside came home with this new information, and I had to go to the next one. What was the information that uh, caused you to want to go to the next one? Just new things about religion. So the next week, I went to the next fireside. I still, to this day, remember what I was wearing, where I sat, who was giving it, and what it was about. And that one was about uh, Baha'i administration. <laughs> but at this... Uh, Fireside, there were several people who'd been coming for a long time, and the host had decided that he would set up a separate, kind of a deepening class for those who were a little more interested. And so I remember going up to him and saying, asking if I could come to this, I've only been to one fireside, but could I come to this deepening class? I learned pretty fast. <laughs> and he said, sure. So went to meetings twice a week then. There is a book called Baha'u'llah in the New Era. I love that book. It was a real eye-opener because it talked about every 
every aspect, really, of the faith. And we discussed it over some months, and it wasn't um, much time before I was learning prayers, and uh, I was still going to the Mormon church because I had a couple positions in it. And I was saying Baha'i prayers at Mormon meetings and so on, and <laughs> it was an interesting time when I decided to become a Baha'i. We both uh, decided together. We both signed our cards, and the cards are just for um, administrative purposes. I had to go back to the church and tell them that uh, they're going to have to get replacement for me <laughs> for the women's group and for the children's class. And I think he was called the, the president of the church, um, met with me, and we talked about things for oh, an hour and a half or so. He asked if I would come back the next week, and we talked some more. He finally asked me to kneel with him in prayer, and he prayed that if I was doing the right thing, I would be very successful, and if I wasn't, I would come back to the church. And I always res respected him for that. It was an amazing time. There was no backbiting or anything. It was a lovely church that I attended. But then I became a very active Baha'i. <laughs> a very interesting story. So, Sharon, thank you so much for sharing that. Okay. We'll bring it back to Earl now. Okay, I'm back. All right, Earl. So that was really lovely uh, having you both share your stories of your spiritual search. <laughs> I was just speaking with Sharon O'Toole, who is Earl Redmond's wife, and she sh shared her story of her spiritual search that led her to the Baha'i faith. And preceding that was Earl Redmond, who shared his story of his spiritual search. Earl is an author who's written a number of books on the subject of the Baha'i faith. And Earl, you've written five books, actually, which were published by George Ronald, which is a uh, UK publishing company. Mm -hmm. And I want to focus on two of these uh, five books that you've written. And these books are about someone by the name of Abdul Baha. So can you tell us who Abdu'l-Baha is and why is he a central figure in the Baha'i faith? Well, Abdu'l-Baha is the eldest son of Baha'u'llah, and he was born in 1844 on the same night that the Bab declared his mission. The Bab's mission was to announce the coming of Baha'u'llah. Can you give us a little more background on who the Bab is? There was a time when all the, the Muslims were expecting the return of of one of their prophets. The Bob said that that was him. He came to fulfill the prophecies of the Quran. And his main job was to prepare the people of Iran for the coming of Baha'u'llah. That was 19 years later he declared himself. So he brought the basic teachings of the Baha'i faith and uh, gave them to the people, and they, were, they spread all over the country. And it was an extremely active time. Iran at that point was a very difficult place to be, very corrupt. People came in mass into the faith, and this terrified the, the government and the clergy. And as a result of over the next 10 or 15, 20 years, almost 20,000 people were martyred just because they believed that Baha'u'llah was coming. And this was in the 19th century? Yes, this was starting in 1844 and going up into the early 1850s. Abdu'l-Baha was born on the very night that the Baha'i faith actually began. 
And he was actually about the first one to recognize the station of his father as a manifestation of God. Now, a manifestation of God, we don't call them prophets. We call them manifestations because they're manifesting the attributes and the will of God to us humans on, on, the, on the earth. And he recognized his father as a child when his father was thrown in uh, prison in Tehran. Now, his father was, uh, Baha'u'llah, was extremely wealthy. And when he was thrown in prison, they lost everything. And for the next 55 years, Abdu'l Baha was a prisoner until 1908. He followed his father in uh, exiles to first to Baghdad and then to Constantinople, Adrianople, which are uh, Istanbul and uh, Erdurni now, and ended up in Akka Haifa in uh, what is now Israel. And uh, when Baha'u'llah passed away in 1892, left this world, he wrote a will. And he told all his followers to turn to Abdu'l Baha and that he would inspire Abdu'l-Bahá with guidance. So this is the first time in all of religious history that a manifestation of God has actually announced a successor in writing. Abdu'l-Bahá, one of his titles is the perfect exemplar because it's through his spiritual connection with his father Baha'u'lláh that he shows us how we should live our lives and how we should treat other people and how we should be of service to the world. So I'm speaking with Earl Redman, an author of five books on the Baha'i faith, published by George Ronald, a UK publisher, and we're focusing on two of his books that are about Abdu'l-Bahá, who is the son of the manifestation of God or the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. So Earl, you have written two books on Abdu'l-Bahá, and one of them focuses on his visit to the United States. Right. When did this visit take place, and what is significant about that visit? Well, he came to the United States in April of 1912. He crossed the whole country and stayed until December. But the significance is in uh, many of the holy writings of Christianity and Islam and the Baha'i faith that talks about the faith moving from the east to the west. And Abdu'l-Bahá took that literally, and he came to the United States. And tens of thousands of people met him, listened to his lectures as he traveled across the countryside he went from New York, Washington, D.C., he was up to uh, Montreal, Chicago, went to Denver, went as far as San Francisco and Los Angeles. So he spent eight months traveling across the United States trying to share the basic principles of the uh, Baha'i faith with all the people in North America. You had said earlier that he is to the Baha'is an exemplar, uh, one who we should follow as an example on what it means to be a Baha'i. And I was wondering if you could share three or four stories of Abdu'l-Baha that sort of demonstrate that aspect of his life that Baha'is aspire for. There's quite a few interesting stories. I'd like to start with one about two young American lads, Wendell and William Dodge. They went to see Abdu'l-Baha in Akka in 1901. And they first met Abdu'l-Baha at lunch. And when they walked into the room, Abdu'l-Bahá was there, and they greeted him, and they smiled, they talked all during lunch, and they had a great time. Well, afterwards, one of the Persians came up and says, you don't treat Abdu'l-Bahá that way. You have to be extremely reverent when you, you see him. And he said, when you see Abdu'l-Bahá in a room, you walk in, you have to bow your head, you cross your arms, you sit down, and you don't speak unless he speaks to you. Well, these two guys felt really bad about what they'd done, because they figured they'd done everything possible wrong. So the next day they come in and they saw Abdu'l-Bahá sitting at the table. So they bowed their heads, they crossed their arms, they sat down. And Abdu'l-Bahá absolutely ignored them. 
didn't even look at them. So now they're really, really confused. They're trying to do the right thing, but that obviously hadn't worked. So they talked the situation over and said, well, let's try it the first way because maybe it's wrong, but at least he was friendly then. So next day they walk in, they greet Abdu'l-Bahá and give him a big wave, and he runs over to them and he gives them a great big bear hug. He says, that's the way you're supposed to be. Be natural. And the whole point is that this faith isn't owned by any group. There's so many different types of people coming into the faith that there are many ways to do the same things. Very nice. So I'm speaking oh. with Earl Redman, and he's, he's written five books on the Baha'i faith, and he's written two about Abdu'l-Baha. And I had asked him to tell some stories about Abdu'l-Baha from the context of how Baha'is should look to Abdu'l-Baha as uh, someone to follow in regards to how one should be as a Baha'i. And he just told one lovely story. Do you have another one you can share with us? Yes, I've got a couple more here. One is about a Protestant missionary from Scotland named Mrs. Ramsey. And she'd been in uh, the Holy Land for many, many years trying to convert Muslims into Christians and being notably unsuccessful. She lived in the entryway of where Abdu'l-Bahá lived. He lived off a courtyard, and she lived right near the entryway. So they saw each other a lot. And every time she would see him, she would pull her hood over so she wouldn't have to see him, or she'd grimace or try to hide away from him. Well, one day, you know, it's a narrow entryway, so he, he comes out, and he kind of catches her, and he walks up to her, and he says, Mrs. Ramsey, do you know how much I love you? Well, this is definitely not the question she was expecting, so she says, how much? And he says, look in your heart. As much as you hate me, that's how much I love you. When she finally left the Holy Land to go back to Scotland, she didn't have any money to go home. So Abdu'l-Bahá paid for her return trip for her and her baggage. Very nice. Do you have another one for us? Yes. We have an interesting one about an atheist who shows up. One day this American atheist shows up. She's carrying an unsightly little dog in her arms. And she basically forces her way into Abdu'l-Bahá's house and announces quite loudly that She's an atheist, and not only is she an atheist, she's a Boston atheist, and they have nothing to do with imaginary beings. Well, after Baha, just quite calmly, just starts talking to her about the unity of God. And after a while, she says she's quite astonished at how easily he can compose poetry. Of course, he's just giving her the writings from Baha'u'llah directly. And finally, when the little dog just couldn't sit still any longer, she got up and started to leave. And as she walked out, she says, you know, if your God is as good as you say he is, Make him change my mind, and she leaves. Well, she was supposed to have gone on a tour the next day, but she overslept. Well, she didn't sleep at all until late in the morning, and then she overslept and missed her tour. So she came in, and she was not a happy camper. She was agitated and uncomfortable, and the dog was probably in worse shape. She said she spent a restless night because all of a sudden all her certainty as an atheist was, was a little shaken, and she wanted to find out the truth. Well, she spent a while until the dog couldn't stay still anymore, and then she left. Well, then she came back the next day, and she was still really bothered. But at least she started spending a little more time paying attention to what he was saying. And then she took her tour, and she came back, and she just moved into the house. She told Abdu'l-Bahá she was not going to leave until they'd solved this thing, because that little niggle of a doubt that she'd had had grown. And so he continued to talk to her. And she started leaving the little dog back in the room and coming down and just listening. And after the end of a week, uh, he'd made her a believer in God. Well, one thing that's interesting about this is that Abdu'l-Bahá saw a tiny spark inside of her that he just slowly fanned until it burst into a flame. Well, something that's a little similar 
when people would go on pilgrimage to meet Abdu'l-Bahá, some people he would tell spiritual things to, other people he would just tell funny stories. So there's an interesting story about Inez Cook. She went on pilgrimage in 1919, and she just had an amazing time. It was a really tremendous experience. So when she went home, she told two of her non-Baha'i friends that they had to go meet Abdu'l-Bahá. She helped organize a trip, and off they went on their tour. Well, this is what happens when they uh, came back. Earl requested that his wife Sharon read from his book about what happens after the two friends return from their visit to Abdu'l-Bahá. Baha'is often referred to Abdu'l-Bahá as the master because he showed them how to live the principles of the Baha'i faith. One of her friends said, Oh, our trip was wonderful. Well, tell me all about it, Inez said. Oh, first of all, we visited the pyramids in Egypt. Yes, yes, go on. Inez said somewhat impatiently. And then we went to the Holy Land. Yes, yes. And then we went to Jerusalem and visited all the holy places. Yes, yes. And then we went to Mount Carmel and we met your master. Yes. And he invited us into his home and we had meals with him and his family. Why, they were the nicest people. And he told us funny stories. And they took us to beautiful gardens and shrines. It was wonderful. Inez paused. Is that all? Is that all? What do you mean? We had a wonderful time. Thank you for arranging it. The following year, in 1921, Inez returned to the Holy Land for a second pilgrimage. During the second visit, she decided to ask Abdu'l-Bahá, My friends came here. They met you. They visited the holy places, but they were unaffected. When I came here, I was completely intoxicated with the greatness of the cause. Abdu'l-Bahá's answer was, At the gate of the garden, some stand and look within, but do not care to enter. Others step inside, behold its beauty, but do not penetrate far. Still others encircle this garden, inhaling the fragrance of the flowers and having enjoyed its full beauty, pass out again by the same gate. But there are always some who enter, and becoming intoxicated with the splendor of what they behold, remain for life to tend the garden. Very nice. Thank you, Sharon. So I have to finish up that little story. When she came back, she took that quotation to her two friends. One was unaffected, but the other one was highly affected and became a Baha'i. Well, do you have one more story of Abdu'l-Bahá before we close? Yes, we have one interesting one. It's a uh, a young American lad. He just kind of shows up in Akka. We don't quite know what the backstory was. He was on a ship that came into port, and he was a brand new Baha'i, and he just ran up Abdu'l-Bahá's house. He just showed up and said, can I meet Abdu'l-Bahá? And they let him in, and he goes and meets Abdu'l-Bahá. And this is what happens. One of Abdu'l-Bahá's interpreters was telling the story of a certain young American lad who blew in one day to see the master. His steamer was in port. He came to the house in Akka while Abdu'l-Bahá was still living in the fortress and asked if he could see the master. Abdu'l-Bahá came in. A number of Orientals were in the room. Abdu'l-Bahá began to speak some words of welcome to be translated by the interpreter. The young man said, tell him I'm very glad to see him. Abdu'l-Bahá said, I'm very glad to see you. 
This boy was just bubbling over. The young man said, Tell him I heard of his cause in the West, and I believe, and I want to devote myself to his service. Abdu'l-Bahá said, Very good. The young man took out his pocket watch and pried off the back. He said, I'm very much in love with the girl, and here's her photograph. The interpreter demurred a little bit at translating this, because in the Orient they don't usually speak of these things before strangers. The master asked the interpreter to translate it, and he did so. The master looked at the photograph. The young fellow said, I pray that she may become a worker in your cause. Abdu'l-Bahá said, She will be accepted. Her service will be very acceptable. The young man said to the interpreter, Ask him if he doesn't think she is very beautiful. The interpreter simply could not interpret that before all those people, but the master insisted upon knowing. And then he said, Yes, she is very beautiful. She has the smile of the kingdom on her face. The young man was very pleased. Abdu'l-Bahá started to say something again. Then the young man opened the other side of his watch and said, Well, I'm in a hurry. My ship is sailing. Tell him goodbye. The old Persians there were simply paralyzed. But the master said afterward, I look below the surface. That young man's heart is very pure. I wish I had more friends of that type. Very nice. Earl, thank you so much for mm-hmm. sharing these stories of Abdu'l-Bahá and for sharing to read excerpts from your book. That's very nice. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your work with us. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Earl Redman, author of several books on the Baha'i faith, including two about Abdu'l-Bahá, a central figure in the Baha'i faith. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Amazing grace How sweet the sound That saved That saved a wretch like me Relief. How precious did that grow?
God, oh God, this is a broken winged bird, and his flight is very slow. Assist him so that he may fly toward the apex of prosperity and salvation. Wing his way with the utmost joy and happiness. Throughout the illimitable space, raise his melody in thy supreme name. In all the regions, exhilarate the ears with this call, with this call, with this call, and brighten the eyes by beholding the signs of guidance.
they take your mind and they're attacking it They're just yes. some blood sucking money hungry Draculas hey. Yo, they say that life is tough, ain't no way that you can battle yes. it And put you in a cloud of confusion, labyrinth So now you're jaded, dreams so faded yes. So you're living that life, but really you're living wasted hey. This is a digital age, don't be a digital yes. slave Don't gotta sacrifice your life to be brave hey. They think that if you're young, then your brain you can't use yes. So they make fake realities that they hand you hey. And stuff it in your ears as if you can't hear yes. The truth, the power's in the hands of the youth, hey. say Getting rich with the hype and the fallback yeah. Over the transient things that we got yeah. Yeah. Tell me where the line of consuming stops at yeah. When the value of what is priced high isn't all yeah. that It's probably made by a child in Vietnam yeah. Or a girl in Cambodia that's working till the dawn yeah. So the thugs from Thailand don't try to buy a little sister yeah. Driven by the tears of her mother when she kissed yeah. her goodbye But yeah, I guess you're looking kind of fly yeah. With all that fresh gear that you just buy yeah. I mean, bot, what's the vocabulary I'm taught? Yeah. Swag, swag, it's scary, is it not? Yeah. Or is it just me? Am I going crazy? Isn't it wrong what they've done any wrong with B-I-H-E? I guess the freedom everywhere's a silhouette. Over there they can't study. Over here we're still in that say. Say. Yeah. Say. Okay, we go. Think that if you're young, then your brain you can't use. So they make fake realities that they hand you. And stuff it in your ears as if you can't hear. The truth, the power's in the hands of the youth. The truth, the power's in the hands of the youth. It's the truth, the power's in the hands of the youth. Say. Thy grace. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.